Hello, and welcome to On Tap, a theater and performance studies podcast. I am Panel Camp of Washington University in St. Louis, and I am joined, uh, as always, by Sarah Bae Chung of Bowdoin College. Um, Sarah, you must have the end of the semester in sight. Uh, what's new out there in the, the chilly New England North? We are just waiting for spring uh, amid reports that we are getting snow. So, you know, yes, the, the end is near, but it doesn't feel near enough at the moment. Yeah, that's a common condition. We had snow this weekend, and it seems weird. We're going to skip from frosty, icy sheets of wintry mix to humid summer. But I, for one, cannot wait for the summer. This has been a pretty intense semester. Um, and I am joined also, as always, by Harvey Young of Boston University. Harvey, you've been up to a lot of stuff recently. Uh, Willem Dafoe. Um, I saw you in you were in New Haven, hanging out with Brandon Jacobs Jenkins and... Uh, and Nikki, Giovanni, Nikki Giovanni yesterday. Oh, Nick, yeah. oh, that's right. Nikki Giovanni yesterday. So it seems like you're getting very much into the swing of things with your new job. Uh, yeah, it's 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 uh, the magic of the Northeast that there's uh, such uh, great theater and arts culture here, uh, and I'm introducing myself to it. I guess you can say. Yeah. Sounds great. Well, I'm looking forward to being out in that neck of the woods for um, Atha. Right, Atha's in Boston this year. Right, I'm not. It is about that. Um, Boston, Weston Seaport. Yeah, that's exciting. And listeners, go ahead and. Register, buy your plane tickets, come see us in our exciting live recording session for the podcast. Um, Today on the podcast, we have some interesting topics to put into the mix. We are going to talk, first of all, about data-driven historiography in theater. We read Derek Miller's 2016 article, Average Broadway, and we're going to talk about the questions it, it brings up in terms of research methods and the kinds of knowledge that um, particular digital humanities methods produce. We are going to talk also about the New York Times style magazine's piece, A Brief History of Gay Theater in Three Acts, and the reaction to that piece, specifically by Elisa Solomon in American Theater. And finally, we're going to talk about gateway classes. This is a curricular issue that I am thinking about these days. Before we get to those topics, though, some news to round up. It's been a while since we've recorded, and so lots has been going on. Um, The MATC conference happened in Milwaukee uh, last month, March 15th through 18th, on the theme of spin. People who were tweeting about that, we appreciated it. It looked like it was a really good meeting, good people out there. And MATC is is one of those conferences where it really is dedicated to theater. Almost all of the sessions that I looked at, and you can find the program online, um, were very much theater-oriented in their content. It's a really cool conference. I mean, I, I didn't go this year, but it began as essentially a way for people People in the Midwest uh, to come together and talk about theater, but then over time, all the people who used to be in the Midwest went elsewhere, <laughs> and and then it became much more of a national conversation around uh, the arts and theater. Yeah, and that was my first ever conference presentation was at an MATC, and I I was in New England at the time. But I thought it was really welcoming and and really exciting. And absolutely, it has national scope in terms of the people who come to present there now. Speaking also of conferences, Aster working sessions were just announced and put online. Again, the conference theme this year is arousal. And uh, all of the working sessions seem suitably tied into that concept. And, And I took a couple of minutes to just browse over those working sessions. And they really look excellent. It's one of those moments when you really feel excited about being in the field and the types of exciting and provocative new work that, that people are discussing and soliciting. So we'll put the link up to those working sessions. Go and check them out. I don't know if any of us are involved or co-convening. Um, not this year. I will definitely be there um, because I'm on the conference committee for the next Aster after that. Um, but excited. Which is where? Um, that is in the D.C. area. Arlington, I believe. I will really have to correct this if I got that wrong. I, th- I, I, I think of it as D.C. Um, because that's the metro area, but it is not in the actual District of Columbia. Um, and the topic of that conference or the theme will be theaters, many publics. Um, but there's plenty of time to talk about that later. 
Other news events, the NEA and NEH funding was re-upped in the uh, appropriations bill signed into law March 23rd. The budget of each of these agencies was actually increased by three about $3 million apiece. Um, as Harvey anticipated, um, months and months ago, it was the support of red state moderates, um, particularly Lisa Murkowski, that reportedly was key to the increased support and continued support of these agencies. The, the White House, the Trump administration, reportedly wanted those programs zeroed out. Um, and instead, they got funding increases, which is good. Um, also, in, in looking that up, I realized that the NEH and the NEA basically receive the same amount of money, which I don't know if that is a feature of the original legislation in the 60s, that they're always basically on par with each other. But I thought that was a curious fact. Other curious facts. Are, are you suggesting that one should be funded higher than the other? No. If so, which one? <laughs> okay, this is great. Yeah, <laughs> which one should get more? No, it just seems like that's a, I mean, it, I think it gets into the strange world of, you know, fiscal decisions and appropriations and legislation. Those programs are both really important federal funding sources for those of us who are in academia and the arts simultaneously. But I think I tend to think of them as really sort of different and and serving different constituencies, given that the humanities is so broad and given that the arts is so broad. Um, So to see that they basically take the same amount of funding and distribute them in their completely different ways, I think is just curious. Um, But do not make me choose. (laughs) Question for a future topic. I, I'd be maybe Harvey already knows this, but the uh, on the subject of the NEA, my sense is that the NEA actually does very little with uh, higher ed and um, anymore. I, I think I think where it gives to schools, it's in school affiliated or school based pro- arts programs in in K through twelve, or even after school kind of community based programs. But my understanding is that whatever at, at one point was even accessible in, in higher education has really dwindled significantly. No, I think you're right. Uh, I mean, I need to look more into this, and this is, I guess, a longer conversation. But my, my sense, uh, just from having served on NEA panels, is that uh, there's expectation that the funding will not go to uh, schools, at least, at least not to universities, to put it that way. Yeah, that would suggest they're sort of staying off of each other's turf. You know, having given a minute, been given a minute to think about that question, Harvey, I think I will say that I wish that the NEA got way more money than it does, um, partly because I, I think of um, the sort of university system as having a lot of different channels for funding, both public and private, though of course, um, increasingly less and less public funding, which is a shame and, and a real problem. But I, I find myself walking around fantasizing about an NEA that supported national theaters in all 50 states, um, an NEA that was you know, boosted up to be on par with European arts funding organizations, because I think the level of public support for the arts in the United States is uh, shameful and atrocious, and we'd all be better off if there if that program was, you know, a hundred times its current size. So, so there, that's my answer. <laughs> but increased funding for the NEH as well. Um, the last thing, <laughs> the last thing I wanted to mention um, is a is an interesting research project that's being conducted by Patrick Duggan and Stuart Andrews, um, uh, both of the University of Surrey. They have a a project that they're working on called uh, Performing City Resilience. And my understanding is that right now in early April, they're wrapping up field research in New Orleans. Um, and this is a, it looks like a really fascinating project uh, designed to understand how arts practice um, contributes to um, resilience of cities. So it sounds like a great project and we'll put a link up on the website so people can learn more about that. So we wanted to talk about Derek Miller's article, Average Broadway, came out in December 2016. Um, It subsequently won um, honorable mention for the ATHA Outstanding Article Prize. And it is a a sort of data-driven and statistical look at uh, Broadway. And of course, it brings up, besides the scope of its research, which is 
already impressive. The questions of what digital and data-oriented research um, can do and what it can't do in our field. So Sarah, would you say just a bit about what is in Derek's article and then maybe open it up to some broader questions that are on your mind about um, digital historiography and and data-driven research? Sure. So for people who haven't read uh, Derek's Derek's article, I first of all, I really recommend it. Uh, in addition to sort of being uh, a provocative ideas, uh, he's also just a lovely writer. And much of Derek's prose unfold, I, I find in the best of his work, it really unfolds as, as somewhat inevitable. You know, so the, the, the effect of reading the essay is like, oh, well, yes, of course. Oh, that seems completely logical. Oh, yes, mm-hmm. right. Uh, which is just a pleasure to read and, and unfolds in a really productive way. I also find it quite accessible to a broad range of folks. So I don't think you need to have a lot of statistical knowledge or previous experience or sophistication with uh, data uh, analysis to appreciate his arguments. But one of the key ideas that he's really looking at is is moving away from a mode of historical inquiry that looks at the exemplary Uh, that looks at key examples. Um, And he makes, I think, a fairly compelling case about past histories in historiographic work that has used representative examples as, uh, as, as evidence for larger trends and ideas of what's happening in a historical moment. So uh, one of the things he talks about is our tendency to put things in the bias of decades, for example. And so looking at what happens in the 60s and the 70s and asking, well, you know, but what if the key shift happens in, I think the example he cites is 1895, right? Does that get swooped up into a decade or should we look at it on its own? The other case that he makes uh, for the argument is that the vast majority, and he's talking uh, exclusively about Broadway, and he's you know, very careful to, to delimit that within certain kinds of examples, so musicals and, and plays as opposed to reviews and some other things. But one of the other things that he mentions is that, look, the successful Broadway shows are actually the outliers. They're the exceptions that Broadway and the history of theater on Broadway, both musicals and uh, non-musical plays, is really made up of a lot of other stuff, right? So a lot of flops, but also the area that he's looking at, which is what's in the middle. And so, and if you're looking at things that are exemplary, right, um, and rhetorically provide excellent evidence, those middle ground, that middle ground, those, you know, middling plays, the things that only run for 25 performances really don't rise to the level of rhetorical investigation, but for the argument that Derek makes is that they rise to the level of statistical investigation and that by applying different kinds of methods, you can under, start to understand differently the trends of Broadway and the trends of theater making. So the, what constitutes a large cast in one era versus a small cast in another, even if it's the same number of actual people who stand on stage. Um, and so I, I find a lot of this really compelling. I think his argument that uh, that theater history needs to account for some of this, I also find very compelling. Um, I don't necessarily think, or I don't read his work as making an argument to replace existing scholarship or existing modes, but that we have to, that we have to add on to it. The, the one thing I wonder about, and I'm curious how, how the two of you read this, is um, I think one of the concerns for people who are coming through more conventionally humanistic approaches to theater and theater history is the extent to which some of this data and the analysis uh, maybe feels overdetermined in some way? I mean, do we feel like there is a sense in which uh, it's not open for rhetorical debate in the same way that, that other humanistic examples are? So anyway, I'm sort of curious how you guys read this and what you found uh, compelling or not. Yeah, I, I, I enjoyed reading this. I mean, what I found uh, quite sort of worthwhile is to, is to think about you know, how the numbers can tell a different story. Uh, and as Sarah was saying, there can be scholarship that spotlights or highlights an example 
uh, as as indicative of a much larger trend uh, and how the numbers uh, could or could not support those examples. Uh, so what I found really interesting here uh, was sort of Derek writing about um, uh, sort of the number of roles for women, uh, you know, and a number of, of women who were actors and performing on stage uh, beginning in the 1960s onward, you know, as a way of offering a different perspective uh, in terms of, of how Broadway uh, sort of roles might have evolved or changed different from the narrative that might uh, look at you know, certain productions uh, or certain figures as signaling a change. You know, so I thought that was worthwhile. Um, but it did make me think uh, that a lot of theater history and criticism comes from the uh, understanding of the, of the impact of a production, right? You know, so that, you know, how do we account for, like in today's speak, you know, and to shift medium, uh, how do we account for the phenomenon of like Black Panther, <laughs> right? You know, which is just one of many things, uh, but it has a cultural resonance uh, that the data itself may not reflect outside the box office, right? Yeah, I think that's a really good point. There, there's something about um, these digital research methods in their quantitative character um, that feels like, I think it feels strange and uncomfortable to those of us who are trained in um, what Sarah calls more traditionally, you know, humanistic methods of interpreting texts, trying to understand um, what the significance of a big cultural phenomenon is. Um, you know, I, it, the the article prompted me to think about what the purpose is of the research that we employ, and I think there's a it's a there's a good um, sort of guideline which in humanist inquiry, which is let's get all the knowledge we can, what there is to know, let's go and find it. And I think Derek is very convincing in in arguing that. There's so much that we don't know because we're just getting our hands on these tools that allow us to look at, you know, the hundreds and thousands of plays that come and go and, you know, all the sort of data that he's taking out of theatrical programs, et cetera. So on the one hand, we absolutely want to know this stuff. Um, On the other hand, how do you conceive of a research project and its value if it is looking at, you know, plays that closed after five nights between 1915 and 1939 like what what would the what is the rhetoric for studying plays that don't have a significant impact and perhaps in a more um radical way for studying plays uh in the absence of reading them for the kind of conventional literary and performance hermeneutics that we're used to. So um, knowing that there's, you know, a certain median night run of all these plays and understanding perhaps the changing ratios of musicals to straight plays, roles, all of these things, there are a way, there, there's a way that those are kind of contentless you don't know precisely what you're talking about. You, you, you know, Derek describes this as analyzing the, the form of a field of cultural production. Um, and so he makes reference to Bourdieu um, pretty extensively along those lines. I feel as though, and this is not against what um, Derek is arguing, but I feel as though there's some sort of combination of the sociological and economic information that he's showing us how to analyze and the um, interpretive sort of meaning oriented research that we're many of us are more familiar with that will be satisfying but sometimes just looking at the statistical aspects of it feels unsatisfying for some reason well one of the things that I think he he does and does really well is paying attention to some of the 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 context and if if i read him derek miller's essay correctly and and if i'm recalling his some of his other work my recollection is that this actually came out of a teaching project and a way of of analyzing particular kinds of trends and i think it's important to also remember that that his orientation and indeed i think his his book which is either coming out soon or maybe it's already out is on the business of theater so his his investigation and his orientation to production is very much one of 
its operations and how it functions. And and I think that he lays out a, a really good case for how this uh, how this information, how the, how his analyst analysis of the data uh, supports different readings and opens up different kinds of questions. Um, that said, I will say that occasionally he runs into moments where I think the the conclusions from some of of the analyses actually exceed the evidence that he presents. And and one interesting example is that in the essay he's talking at one point about the size of casts and. And then he talks about the size of casts relative to most plays on Broadway. So he says at one point, today only a quarter of Broadway plays include 13 actors or more. Because the self-evident given, quote, the average Broadway cast size is smaller today than in 1949, Death of a Salesman's cast appears larger today than in the past. Watching Death of a Salesman on Broadway today invokes surprise and pleasure at the scope of Arthur Miller's fictional world, reactions less likely from audiences at the premiere who are accustomed to watching plays at that scale. That's possible, but that's a pretty big interpretive leap in terms of whether or not a size of a cast actually has a, a, a kind of phenomenological effect on our appreciation and our understanding of the scope of the world, particularly when we're talking about a box set, relatively fixed play, as opposed to, you know, I think when I think of sort of the the surprise and pleasure at the scope of a fictional world, death of a salesman does not really come to mind even today. Um, and so I, I, I think that in some ways the, 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 the comparative scale there is not to number of people on stage or number of actors or roles in a, in a, in a play, but has much more to do with scenic design, has to do with music, has to do with things like the sort of surprise of, of countercasting in, in something like Hamilton, the introduction of popular elements like rap, the intersection with contemporary issues like social media and Dear Evan Hansen, or, um, you know, I just, I think there are other things in, at play. And, and this is the sort of thing where I feel like of course, interpretation and, and rhetorical argument still becomes really, really important, even when you're dealing with 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 data like this, because, you know, we have to interpret the data and we can draw all kinds of different inferences from it. Yeah, I mean, I think I, I, I agree. Uh, but what I found really interesting in, in this in this same area, but just take it from a different perspective, you know, is the sense that as average yeah, average cast sizes have gotten a bit smaller, uh, you know, in a period, and this is what Derek argues, that uh, that as automation is occurring within society, you're expecting fewer people to do the same job much more efficiently, whereas within the arts, uh, you know, the play takes as long as it takes to perform, you know, so that remains unchanging, you know, so that there becomes this, uh, at least there's an imagined sense of a phenomenological appreciation for the duration of time and also the appearance and presence of multiple bodies, you know, over you know this duration of time that, that remains unchanged. That um, I think he's implying, you know, has to trigger some sort of awareness, whether it's an appreciation or satisfaction. I don't know. I mean, many of us have seen three-hour plays that were much more common uh, in the past, and today you're just like, wow, that was painfully long. <laughs> you know, so it's like, but definitely there is some level of an appreciation of the difference because it falls outside the norm. Yeah, Sarah, it occurs to me that you know, your last comment sort of answered your initial question about the overdetermination or overdeterminedness of some of these conclusions, um, which is that I think there's still a rich field of debate that you can have within quantifiable information that you're debating, either in terms of the statistics themselves and what they suggest or what the relationship is between those, um, you know, sort of economic type data and the the phenomenological or, or sort of meaning oriented results of them. I thought, and, and I also agree with you, uh, Harvey, that there's some the way he goes about this research project, and I think he's deliberately trying to communicate with readers who he expects may be hesitant to engage in this. So he's framing it in terms of, you know, NL school macro history. He's framing it extensively in terms of Bourdieu. But I think he is showing how there are, when you look at this information through these tools, you come up with new questions and new phenomena that you wouldn't have seen otherwise, unless you dedicated 10 years of your life to tabulating these statistics or looking at the documents firsthand, you wouldn't get around to thinking of the relationship 
between you know increased economic productivity over time and cast size and the relative cost of theater production. I also think the last section is really provocative on the historiography of um, unpopular theater, right? Um, the you know we've already sort of gone through in the last generation a sense that works of art and literature are not necessarily worth studying only because they are exemplary and interesting and well done. We also want to look at Metamora and we want to look at Uncle Tom's Cabin and we want to look at things that were big cultural phenomena, even though we might look back at them and think, oh, these were awful and we don't want to restage them. Miller is talking about something else, which is the plays that are not only bad, but also that no one liked, but that make up the preponderance of cultural production in certain eras, that to me is a really exciting thought. I've, in my own research, I've found plays in the 18th century in France that were never produced. And to my mind, those are still evidence of a kind of condensation of meaning or thought. They still reflect something, even if audiences didn't really want to see it. An author still sat there and imagined this thing, and it didn't come from nowhere. So it has historical weight to it. So what about the, you know, the legacy of all the different kinds of flops, you know, fully realized productions of plays that ran for a weekend, there's specificity to it. It's not just a a negative field, you know? So I, I, that was one of the things I liked best about this article is the suggestion of a whole new area of, of history that might be explored. It will be, it will be exciting to see. I mean, I, I really think that, that, Derek Miller is at the at the at the cutting edge of a lot of this type of work. Uh, he's certainly not alone. Um, there are other people doing really interesting digital humanities projects in and around theater and performance studies. But I think his particular approach is is unusual, if not unique, to my knowledge. And uh, I, I guess I'm really excited to see what comes as people respond to this, take up similar techniques, apply it in different spheres. I mean, one of the challenges, I think, is that Derek starts with Broadway, where even by his own admission, there are certain gaps, but there's there's a pretty big online accessible base of knowledge that we can that we can access off Broadway, experimental theaters, smaller stuff that's digitized or in which the metadata is not consistent. Um, that's going to be a lot harder. And so one of the other questions, I think, for the for this area in the field is how are we, how can we apply, you know, big data techniques where big data uh, may not be so big yet? Absolutely. Why don't we move on now to our next topic? The New York Times Style magazine published a, a long essay entitled A Brief History of Gay Theater in Three Acts by the Times' new co-head theater reviewer, Jesse Green. And it, it, spurred some negative reaction. Jill Dolan on Facebook criticized it in strong terms. And then Elisa Solomon, theater critic and journalist and professor of journalism at Columbia, also responded in American theater to this. So Harvey, would you do us the the service of just sort of saying what basically the the Jesse Green essay does and what the thrust of the reaction to it has been? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so uh, if I remember correctly, uh, back when uh, Jesse Green was hired, I think that there was this concern that it was a missed opportunity uh, for the New York Times to uh, be more uh, inclusive uh, in terms of the authorial voice uh, that it could center as as a lead reviewer uh, for the Times. Uh, so uh, along comes a New York Times-style magazine uh, feature, uh, which actually looks at the 50th uh, anniversary of The Boys in the Band uh, and actually anticipates uh, the upcoming May revival uh, of that play. And what Jesse Green does is he offers, as he puts it, a, a brief history of gay theater. But in many ways, it kind of reads like uh, a brief history of, of 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 gay theater written, you know, long before you know the development of any sort of attention to uh, you know sort of uh, queerness being tied in with different cultural perspectives. Uh, you know, it's it's a whiteness, it's a maleness, it's sort of there's 
not attention to women. Uh, not, there's not attention to trans theater. There's not there's not attention to uh, you know theater produced by uh, people of color. It's just like you've turned back the dial. We, we, you know, we went back in time and imagined that two decades of criticism just never occurred. You know, so rightfully so. And as the sirens go off in the background <laughs> here uh, in Boston to alert us to not read this piece, <laughs> right? Um, rightly so. Uh, a number of people were uh, uh, outraged uh, by uh, by this omission. Uh, and this, uh, especially certainly within the New York Times, uh, that led to Jill Dolan uh, sort of writing on Facebook uh, about like how is it that um, you know the amazing work uh, of authors um, and playwrights have been uh, dismissed, and ignored, and then it prompted Lisa Solomon to write in American Theater uh, about the critiques that this article has has generated, you know, and rightly so, pointing out the fact that. Uh, Jesse Green just falls short in terms of actually offering a history or a critical engagement with the theater that exists today, and which is only compounded by the fact that the Style magazine, which kind of treats it as almost like a fashion spread where you uh, look at the um, what people are wearing and, and broken down by the cost of individual items, just actually works against um, a thoughtful critical engagement with um, queer theater today. So that's what's going on, uh, and you know, as Jill put in Facebook, you know, are we still there canonizing all the same plays? Um, you know, and Elisa points out the fact. Lisa Solomon points out the fact that you know, when when pushed, when asked to respond, you know, Jesse Green's response itself was unsatisfying. You know, where he felt as though he could not write uh, about uh, the history of uh, uh, theater created by uh, lesbian playwrights uh, and trans playwrights. You know, he felt that if people had critiques, that they should you know email and and call his editor. Uh, but that sense of an unwillingness to acknowledge the deficiencies in that work is a, is a flaw. So to, to move toward our, our conversation, if Derek Miller's piece you know, was award-winning, data-driven, and, and very impressive, then, then this piece by Jesse Green uh, was definitely not an award winner. It's, it's, it's just full of anecdotes that you know, lack data and, and certainly is not impressive. So what do you think about this piece? <laughs> There's a lot to say about this. Um, <laughs> I I read the Style Magazine piece first and then Elisa Solomon's response. And I was really wanting to keep an open mind and say, does this should this piece not exist? Should it have been written differently? Is there anything really wrong with celebrating these particular plays in the context of revivals and in saying you know, these works of theater that were once on a sort of cultural vanguard of acceptance for gay people in mainstream culture are now sort of being revised and they're no longer in that vanguard. They've they've sort of become something else. And I, I really, I think I did keep an open mind and it just got sort of worse and worse as the the language of the piece continually drifted away from a sort of personal memoir or appreciation of these particular plays that are being revived in a style piece to a kind of theater historical essay trying to that, that really seemed like it was self-consciously trying to form a canon of gay theater and it was what was worse was that you would say you could say oh well this is not self-conscious he has just looked at these plays that are being revived and they happen to be white male playwrights so he's just only thinking about that within that scope but then he makes this sort of passing and almost dismissive acknowledgement of the fact that all the people he's writing about are white all of them are are men and and yet there is this kind of over ambition to it i guess the question i have for it is what precisely went wrong on the one hand i think you can <laughs> well really on the one hand you can say you know the new york times replaced one of its two lead theater reviewers with another white man and miss that opportunity. And that's part of what's wrong. And that's part of what Elisa Solomon and Jill Dolan are responding to. Absolutely. On the other hand, I think, you know, another question simultaneously is, you know, is there a version of this piece in the style magazine that wouldn't be as upsetting and offensive? To my mind, if, if the premise of the piece is, you know, Angels is being revived, Boys in the Band is being revived, Torch Song Trilogy. Let's talk about the, you know, let's let's put some of the actors of these revivals in some nice clothes and make a style spread out of it and not take on the sort of historical ambition of of making that into this sort of totemic representation of this massive cultural moment, dismissing 
other people who were there at the same time, I feel like that could be acceptable. I don't think there's anything necessarily wrong with having a style piece featuring these um, actors. Um, but to me, it was something about the misplaced ambition of that essay that really went wrong. And and Green is just intellectually out of his league when he's dealing with Elisa Solomon. And, and it made me wonder if there's a kind of mismatch of journalistic genres here um, that could have been avoided as well. well. Well, to be fair, I think Jesse Green doesn't think or doesn't realize when he's writing this that he is drawing Elisa Solomon into battle. Um, so... I mean, and, and I think I think a couple of things. One is that is, is the question of audience, and if there's if there was ever a doubt of who 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 is the primary readership for the New York Times style magazine, um, I think that question has been answered. Uh, and but I think more more to your point, panel is the it's really that 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 subtitle that I think people really took issue with, which is the stage is theirs, right under the sort of image of, of actors recognizable from mass media, and then the return of the boys in the band and the golden age of gay theater. And in many ways, I mean, I think looking back at, at, at the 1960s and 1970s and 1980s, just as a historical era of gay, of gay theater, I mean, to, to, to talk about that as a golden age is, 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 a, is an odd designation, right? Because while on the one hand, you've got the emergence of all kinds of work, and I'm completely with Solomon and, and Jill Dolan in their recognition and the complete eclipse of what was happening in, in much of what I consider the golden age of queer theater in the 1980s, right? Which is like the WOW Cafe and a number of other alternative spaces. But also that, I mean, even if we're going to sort of uh, canonize those decades. I mean, this was theater in which people were dealing with the fact that they hated themselves and then were really struggling with, I mean, w- in advance of AIDS, of how to live in a society that hated them and taught them to hate themselves and taught them to hate each other. And I mean, you know, to my mind, I'm really, it'll be interesting to see how Boys in the Band plays today because there is so much, I mean, for me, that is such a play of self loathing. And and I think it's important for, you know, young queers to to know that this was the history and the way people thought about uh, themselves and, and, you know, a, a kind of historical moment. But I also don't necessarily want to hold that up as like some sort of golden age that we should go back to. Right. And if we're talking about the that that as a lead into our contemporary period is a golden age. Well, then to ignore the diversity of of, of gay, lesbian, you know, queer, LGBT, right, trans theater today, like and to talk about it as a golden age absent that is is, you know, to 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 go back to the Derek Miller, right, where you're looking at a few <laughs> cherry picked examples and and you're ignoring the majority of the work that is happening. And that is and that is significant. So, I mean, it, in some ways, I think it also, you know, without sort of doubling down on, on picking on the article itself, I think it's worth thinking about. And, and, and a style magazine. I went, and I think Alyssa Solomon does a really nice job of being like, you know, look, it's a style magazine. I'm not, you know, but is to is to really unpick uh, un- apart this notion of golden age and what what do we think that representative work does in this in this genre and how do these works, you know, function for us today? And so I'm, you know, delighted to amplify the the, the critiques that have come out against this as a way of thinking about some larger things about, okay, so what is the status of queer theater today? Yeah, I, I thought the, the part of the discussion that was about the respectability politics, the problems of looking back on this play that dramatizes self-loathing, that was interesting. I, I didn't, I wouldn't, I think that the piece could have been sort of salvaged if it was style spread, here's these actors, let's, a retrospective of this one play that was, you know, has this interesting and complicated history in a larger movement. I think without using the sort of golden age language or sort of trying to prop it up into this revisionist history, it, it really wouldn't be that objectionable. Yeah, I don't, I don't know. I mean, I, I, I'll say this from t- in two different perspectives for uh, two different perspectives, just two different ways. Um, I mean, one, I, I feel like as an author, like your job is to bring a certain level of critical rigor <clears throat> to everything you're doing, you know. And we live in an age in which, um, you know, articles uh, they they freely circulate independently of 
of, of the newspaper. Uh, and it's important for you know the work to be well informed, and I also think that's important for you know our sort of authors uh, of all sorts, uh, you know, to be inclusive uh, and to be responsible for the for the history that's written. And you know, for when you have the platform of of the New York Times uh, uh, and even within the style section of it, like you know, to just shrug and say that oh, like this is not something that I'm going to. Um, uh, like this is a history, this is an area. You know, th- th- these are works, these are playwrights that I'm not going to value. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it just smacks of a certain level of, of intellectual laziness um, that I that, that bothers me. Well, it also inadvertently, I think, makes the case against uh, his hiring is duplicative within the New York Times. Like if everyone is just going to write from their own personal tastes and what's most familiar and recognizable, then then, you know, aside from questions of laziness, then it seems incumbent upon the venue itself, in this case, the New York Times, like, okay, so if that's, if that's the approach of your authors, then, then there's a mandate, in fact, to diversify, uh, to diversify that critical voice, because that's precisely what people have been arguing. I mean, this is what Paula Vogel was talking about last year, you know, with the with the critical reception of Indecent, right? I mean, if 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 people are fundamentally approaching theater criticism as a question of personal taste and, and recognition, and though the people whose voices are most valued and and most you know have the most power to amplify and perpetuate certain kinds of work, then we're going to continue to say see the same kinds of stuff because those are the voices that are that are shaping the market. Our third topic, listeners, um, in a way, this is uh, a selfish action on my part because it's a, a topic that I'm thinking about in the context of my own department, though I really do think it's a it's a puzzle in um, university theater and performance pedagogy. How do you offer a class that brings students interested in theater, dance, and performance into your Department is the gateway class something that a department really needs to focus on in order to maximize student interest. In our current situation here, we have a variety of different classes that sort of do that. There's a, a freshman focus class where students will who are you know interested in taking a theater oriented class will sign up, and that's got sort of you know uh, it's not a giant lecture class, but it's more for students who know that they're intensely focused in theater. Um, we have uh, an introduction to theater production class, which is really just about design and tech, and um, students take that and fulfill a curricular requirement and end up work- working backstage in classes. I feel as though acting one is also a class where students who might just have a sort of low-level interest in theater or low-level interest in acting can come and get introduced to the program. But in in my undergraduate alma mater, the theater department had an introduction to theater class, which sort of encompassed all the different areas. There were there was design and um, taught and acting and scenes were performed. So I guess I'm curious, Harvey and Sarah, in your careers and your experience, have you encountered a, a quote unquote ga- gateway class that you think works really well? What do you guys do at Bowdoin? So at Bowdoin... Um, I mean, by far and away, our most, uh, I think, popular gateway drugs, I'm sorry, (laughs) uh, are uh, acting. And, uh, but those are always limited, right? Uh, By the number of, of, you know, people that you can have in a room. So uh, about a year ago, we uh, started introducing a number of of larger uh, lecture classes that were designed to introduce people to the discipline in, 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 in various ways. And so, um, and this, this, I mean, I teach these and they come out of my background. So at the University of Buffalo, I taught a introduction to theater for non-majors, for example, that fulfilled the arts requirement and occasionally would convince some folks to take another theater class or, or think about it. I also taught a, an intro and that one I think had like 75 students in it. And then I taught an intro to majors that I think, you know, usually had around 25 to 30 students in it. So a very different kind of classroom dynamic. Um, at at Bowdoin, now I've taught a range of, of kind of intro level classes, all of which are designed to do slightly different things, but, but many, much of which is sort of to give people an opportunity to come into the, into the department. One of the challenges I think that 
that we're, we have, and this is something I talk about with my fellow arts chairs as well, is that, you know, in a 50-person lecture class, whether it's, you know, one of my classes is called, you know, art of performance, and it's like a little bit of dance and a little bit of performance studies and a little bit of theater, you know, theater and theater history and theater production, you know, do you really get a sense of what it is of the art form in terms of its its poesis, right? It's making, like what it means to, to do theater or even to see theater, because our opportunities to see live theater are, are relatively limited. And if we were to make it so that, you know, to fulfill the, the visual performing arts requirement here, you actually had to do a hands-on kind of engaged mode of inquiry, you know, could we actually have enough classes that everybody who had to take one could could take one and so this is what we kind of struggle with it's a, the you know I teach like intro to musical theater and the music department teaches you know history of jazz and but I think you know there's a sense in which that's okay but maybe it's not always necessarily really a kind of introduction to theater in on in a lot of other kinds it's really more an introduction to theater studies as opposed to an introduction to theater making of any uh, in any way even when i put in projects and things like that that's interesting so it sounds like you have the same sort of array of different classes and it's not like there's some feeder class where all the majors take it and then a bunch of other people take it and some of them decide to continue it's a it's a variety of different classroom situations well, that's <clears throat> the one the one class that we have like that is this is this art of performance class and this is this is designed to be taken by every major it's it's designed to be taken relatively early but our major is so young that you know it still has like all four years in it so we'll see um and that's really an introduction to vocabulary and methodology um i mean I'll, honestly the way i approach a lot of my my intro level courses is uh to expose students to as many new things as possible to give them a, a critical framework for evaluating and figuring out what they care about and what they like um, and why they care about it, and then to incite some kind of further interest and passion uh, in in the field that they then can pursue on their own. Mm-hmm. Um, because there's just, you know, within the, cor- the time of the semester and, you know, and, and a range of familiarity, I, I, you know, I can't, I can't, I don't have time to do a lot more than that. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm just, I feel like I'm just kind of throwing a, a lot of stuff at them and hoping that, you know, and so trying to put enough in there that there's something for everybody that they're like, oh, I, I would like to read more about that. Yeah, Harvey, what about um, what you re- remember from Northwestern or BU? Are there strategies that differ from this or particular classroom designs that you think work well? I, I mean, it's I, I haven't had much experience with the true uh, gateway class that serves sort of non-theater, non-arts majors. I mean, a, a lot of the classes that I've been involved with have been classes that people have already decided they want to be a major in theater or a major in music, for example. Um, and then it's, it's what's, what's the experience that you give them. Uh, the closest I have to that experience, I guess you'd say, would be at the University of Buffalo when I taught an intro to film class. And that was, that was truly a gateway class where it was open for the whole university. It was an intro level class. Uh, and you know the pot, it, was, it was a chance for people to discover the possibility of being a, of being a film major. And I remember being, when I was in college, like a really great class was the Formations of Modern American Culture class, you know, which really aimed to you know, introduce you to the humanities, but also history. Uh, and how to critically engage popular culture from a variety of perspectives. And I think that became this path toward studying American studies, or for me as a film major, film, which was part of American studies uh, back in the day. Um, you know, But within, at Northwestern, I would teach the uh, theater and context class. I did that for a number of years, which is the one class that was required for all 100 to 110 uh, first year uh, students in the fall. Uh, and in that case, I try to use the class as a chance for us to think about what are important topics and issues and concerns we should be working through uh, regardless of interest in acting or directing or design uh, or producing or playwriting. Uh, so that became a place you know, for us to talk about the state of contemporary art making, to talk about you know, the role of race and gender, to talk about you know, sexism and bias, to, you know, to really begin conversations about the future, that, the future of theater that we wanted to enact you know, at the first few weeks of the, of the quarter you know, so that over four years, not only could you spot those moments when, you know, theater was 
going off the rails uh, and in some ways uh, not taking us to where we want to go, you know, but also preparing ourselves for a future where we can create theater that doesn't look like the theater that exists today. And that was required for people in the major in their first year. Yes. So they were yes. taking it as a requirement. And then we have, it sounds like, Sarah, you also, Buffalo offered that big intro to theater class, which fulfilled a requirement for the general education. It sounded as though that wasn't a great channel of people into the major, that people tended to take it, check check their box, and then for the most part, you wouldn't see them again. Is that right? It varied. I mean, I think that it really depends on the type of institution that you're talking about. I mean, at, at Bowdoin and at other liberal arts colleges or schools that have a strong liberal arts focus, there's, um, there's very much a rhetoric of exploration. People declare their major relatively late. So, for example, Bowdoin students don't don't declare a major uh, until the second semester of their sophomore year, so fully halfway through their undergraduate experience. At, at UB, um, you know, our theater majors auditioned as part of their, you know, as, as part of their application to the university. So they, they kind of came into, into Buffalo uh, as theater and dance majors. Um, this is particularly true for the, the, the BFA, but it was true for many of the BA students as well. Um, and I think a number of other programs functioned very similarly to that, uh, not necessarily having auditions, but, but people kind of came in knowing what they want to do. I mean, I do think one of the challenges that we have right now is a national conversation around higher education, which is very much about knowing what you want to do as early as possible, having a clearly defined career trajectory, and using... Uh, college as a way of getting you the job skills that you need in order to be competitive in that in that field, which is very different than the mission of a of a liberal arts context. So I think the the class functions differently within within those two different kinds of domains. Mm-hmm. Now I, I wonder, in terms of the design for a gateway class for theater or performance dance, you know, if if there's within the mind of the instructor. A question of do you have to create some sort of balance between uh, like the fun class that's going to invite people in uh, who might otherwise take the class and then rigor you know and, and what I mean by that is that we, we know that there are sort of gateway classes that exist in the sciences you know which um, you know often might have a fun title or something like that but it's, it's also a way for uh, students to know whether or not they think they can succeed mm-hmm. uh, uh, in biology or in you know engineering 101 uh, and I just don't know because I haven't I haven't created the class around this, but I I wonder I, I suspect that there's probably some tension within the instructor uh, in terms of like you know how do I make the class appealing and somewhat fun, you know you know without sacrificing the, uh, you know sort of the, the hard work that you know the the, the specific training um, uh, the rigor you know of tr- of an education within the arts. Thank you so much, guys, for helping me think about this curricular problem. Um, uh, why don't we move on to our drafts? Um, what are the things that you guys have been thinking about, mulling over, um, that are sticking in your minds? Um, uh, Sarah, do you want to start us off and, and tell us what your draft is? Sure. So, um, so a couple of things. First of all is, uh, you know, happy end of March madness to everyone. And, uh, <laughs> And so sad that my, you know, beloved uh, alma mater fell fell short against Villanova. But congratulations to them, and also to Notre Dame uh, women who had just an unbelievably uh, exciting final game against um, Mississippi State. Those were just like two amazing teams to watch, and also to uh, to the Polar Bears here at Bowdoin. The women were uh, runners up in the national D D three championship. So, um, it's been a good, it's been a good six weeks or so of basketball. Um, and I was really pleased to note the, that there are a couple of sports themed calls in, uh, in the Astor working groups. Um, so if you're similarly bemoaning the end of basketball season and feeling like it's still too cold to really celebrate opening day in baseball, you know, I encourage you to sort of look in those domains. My other draft is uh, slightly less theater related. It's I've been really uh, compelled by a by the Chronicle series of women in a, in the academy, 
And this is a series of first-person narratives of individual women's experience. And one of the things that really struck me in reading all of those is the the largely unspoken history of, of, of women pioneers in a whole bunch of different fields. And, you know, we talk a lot about women in the sciences, but we spend a lot less time talking about women in the humanities and, and talking about women in the arts and what those trajectories have been like. And I, and I, I just, I, I think for myself, I tend to overlook and take a, a lot of that history and those narratives for granted or, or to pay a lot less attention than I should. And anyway, so I, I, I encourage, um, if, you, if people haven't had a chance to read that in the Chronicle of Higher Education, it's a great, it's a great series. It's great reading. That's phenomenal. We'll put a link up on the, on the website. Thank you, Sarah. Um, Harvey, what's on your mind these days? I'm thinking about the many, many openings that exist for artistic director positions uh, in this country. Uh, apparently there are somewhere around like 20, um, you know, give or take the openings. And and thinking about not only the the effort that a lot of companies are making to uh, change their leadership uh, and, and to diversify their leadership um, uh, after uh, in decades, in many cases, of, of not having, um, you know, either a a woman or um, and or a person of color uh, as the artistic director and then also wondering you know how it's going to shake out right like, like like what's going to happen over the next year and a half in terms of who will become artistic directors which ones are going to resign from their current company and institution to lead another one uh, and it seems to me that we're in this moment where like the the face you know for, for lack of a better word of american theater uh, or american theaters will change uh, you know, so I'm curious to see what's going to happen and how the choices that are made are, are fueled not only by you know the need for a new vision, uh, but also an acknowledgement that within the current political moment, uh, that to have people who are you know aggressively um, speaking in support of diversity and inclusion, um, um, and to have the broad spectrum of experiences represented on stage as a as a key and quite important element, uh, like that's what I'm thinking about. So I, it's, I don't know where we're trending right now, uh, but much like, you know, in some ways we're holding our breath, similar to the New York Times, you know, hiring a, <laughs> a new theater critic and to see what possibilities might, um, uh, you know, uh, arise um, or, or emerge. And we're in the same moment right now, but looking at a much bigger scale across American regional theater. That's fascinating. So that's tw- sort of 20 job openings that are sort of being listed now and yeah. It could be 18. Yeah, but it's <laughs> that's, that seems like a lot. And it's not that there's sort of it, that would just be the sort of normal or, or or sort of yearly turnover. It's not that there were sort of positions that have remained unfilled. And No, I mean, it makes sense if you think about it. Uh, if you think of like the rise of American theater uh, sort of emerging in the early 70s. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, and you think about the sort of generational changeover uh, so that every... 20 years, uh, you're talking about new leadership, right? So, you know, we're in that moment where there's a big sea change occurring right now. Yeah, yeah. I feel like we need to, like, do some data on this, yeah. you know, I, that, that really this is, there, this is a new, a good DH project, right, that you could sort of track the, what is the average, or, you know, what is the tenure of, of at particular institutions, and how do those compare overall, and are there these kind of predictable sea change trends? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I I could not decide on a draft. I've got multiple unsatisfactory options. At the, <laughs> at, at the risk of ending on a trivial note, I'm going to go with the trivial one, which is tell me if you guys have had this experience. You do something for a press, like you review a manuscript, and your compensation is a choice of either a small, <laughs> like a small cash fee or twice that amount in books from the catalog of the press, right? Sounds like you guys are familiar with this option. Yeah. I don't feel oh, like yes. you can ever take the cash. I feel like the the suggestion is to the person who's invariably like an editor asking you to do this is to say, "Yeah, well, I'd love to shop the amazing books that you are, are have published and and, you know, pick out three or four really great titles." But even at that extreme, even at that bargain rate, I'd rather have, you know, this small check. Like, I, I wonder if anyone ever asks for the money. I just don't feel like I can. Like, there's times when I'm like, yeah, oh. I could, I would like to go out to dinner and, and do that for this work. But no, I have to, like, go through the catalog and pick out. Oh, no, I, 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 
I don't have room for more books. Hey, that's the thing. Uh, so unless there's a book that I absolutely know that I want to buy and have as opposed to just, you know, use in the library, you know, I will often take the cash. I'm glad to hear that because I- and it, and it is it is nothing against the books themselves. It's it's simply that I I mean, I I have filled every shelf in my in my not tiny office, yeah. right? I have a fairly <laughs> significantly sized office with with ample bookshelves and they are all totally filled with like the stacking on top of the books <laughs> and I will tell you like when I moved into this office or you know when I, I guess when I moved to Bowdoin I still have about a you know a half dozen boxes of of books in my basement yeah that I just decided like well I don't think I'm going to use those as much mm-hmm. so so the idea of taking books sounds absolutely oppressive plus uh, you know the people I live with are, have told me I'm not allowed to buy new, new books I can't tell you how relieved I am to hear that I feel totally empowered to say yes send, send me a check uh, that's really that's really really good to know um, Harvey Sarah it is as always a great pleasure to to hang out with you guys uh, digitally intermediately listeners thank you so much for listening and um, we will be back at you soon with more podcasts on tap is supported by the performing arts department at Washington University in St. Louis and its master's program in theater and performance studies. You can find us on the web at ontappod.com. Email us at hosts at ontappod.com. You can find us on Facebook, search for ONTAP, and on Twitter at ONTAP Podcast.